maybe something complex that just totally revolutionizes life. It changes uh, the world forever um, in ways that you can't even really uh, comprehend at the time it comes out. You just know when you see it, you just think that is a really good idea. And sometimes it's so simple that, you know, you almost think I could have thought of that myself, <laughs> you know, and it's just something so small um, yet so profound that, that you know that, that the, the, uh, the trajectory of humanity is going to change because of what just came on the scene, you know. Um, there have been a handful of things like that, you know, when you think about the iPod, when the iPod first came out, you know, 10, 15 years ago. And before that, you would walk into someone's house and sometimes you would just see uh, towers of compact discs. You know, they had the CD racks and, you know, they would sell them at furniture stores and people would buy these things. And then you'd look and you'd see people's collections or you'd get in someone's car and every visor and in the console in between and, you know, was just covered with compact discs. You know, for me, it was teaching tapes. You know, I just had hundreds of teaching tapes of Bible studies everywhere under the seats of my car. Just everywhere you'd go, there was tapes, tapes, tapes. And then the iPod came out. And then all of a sudden, people had these towers of garbage. <laughs> it was like, what do I do with these things now? I've spent thousands of dollars, and, and, I, and, and they're worthless. They're on, now they're digital, and it's, it's just there. you know. And it changed everything. It changed our, our possessions. It changed the industry. It changed uh, the profitability and the way artists make money. I mean, it just changed everything. Just this one little invention, and everything has changed. The first person to ever get the idea that we need an alpha keyboard on our cell phones. And just think about what just that did. You know, I mean, we had phones and then we had cell phones, but then there was the alpha typewriter on the cell phones that came out. And just think about everything that that changed. When that, just that little thing, just letters, when that came out, now no, no more Nextel. Remember Nextel? You know, no more. Now we can text message. Email changed forever. Don't need to email anymore. Just shoot a text message. The postal service. I mean, yeah, the email did a number on them to begin with, <laughs> right? But then now, and you just think about just how something so small can change the world as we know it. And it can change so many hundreds of years of history and the way things were done and the ideals and everything. And it can all change just like that. Well, as we come to Romans chapter 3 this morning, the truth that's set before us there, the truth itself wasn't new, but the way that it's put forward and the way the Apostle Paul puts it forward, you almost get the sense that when people read this for the first time, that it was like, oh my goodness, it's so clear, it's so plain, it's so obvious, and, and you almost think that there was someone in that time that said, you know, the, the, the person who put these things down, so ingenious, and yet it's so simple. It's so clear, it's so plain, that if only maybe I could have thought of how to put this out there. <laughs> you know, I could have been the author of it, and yet I'm so thankful that it's here. To, to realize the, these things and how they're, they're laid out before us. And so we come now where we are in this chapter. We come to the conclusion that the Apostle Paul has been driving towards since he began the letter in chapter 1. The theme, his purpose, his motive, his reason is the gospel. 
to explain to us in clear, simple, unmistakable terms what it is that we believe. What does it mean to be a Christian? Why did God send his son into the world? What is the purpose of all of it? That's what he's seeking to lay out, the gospel. But what he does first, in the first three chapters, is he proves that every part of humanity is fallen into sin and that is under the wrath of God. And he goes the lengths to say, it doesn't matter if you're a Jew, whether you're a Gentile, or whether you're just a complete heathen, you know, religious person, whatever you are, you are under sin. And the reason why he does that is because the good news of God's salvation is irrelevant until a person knows that they need it. And so it's essential that he takes the time in these passages to prove to every one of us that we don't have a chance. And so he has done that as we've looked at chapter 1 and then in chapter 2. He has proven that it doesn't matter where you're from, who you are, what you believe. You're a sinner before God and therefore because you're a sinner, you are condemned and on the wrong side of God's righteousness. Every one of us. And so he's winding that case down. And as we come to chapter three, what we have are his closing arguments. And he's going to boil it down to a single sentence that he's bringing us to when we get to verse 19 and 20. Just one sentence that all of this concludes at the simple thing that changes life forever and that opens our eyes to the thing that we most need. And so he begins chapter three right now um, with a question. In chapter uh, 3, verse 1, he says, What advantage then has the Jew, or what profit is there of circumcision? Now, the reason that he brings, uh, starts this way with this question is because he's connecting his context with what he has just said. He, he, he started back up in verse uh, 17 of chapter 2 by talking to the Jew, talking to the Israelite. And basically, what he brought forward before us were 13 things that the Jews were trusting in, thinking that they were right with God because they could make the claim. Their nationality, their heritage, the fact that they had the law, their knowledge of the Old Testament scriptures, their ability to discern God's will, all of these things that the Jews could claim that the rest of the world couldn't. But they were trusting in those things that because they had those things, we're right with God. Well, we have his word. Abraham, we're his descendants. We have the, the, the Jerusalem, the temple. All of, We have these things. God obviously is, is for us. And what Paul does is he undoes it all. He says, no, no, none of that makes you right with God. Knowing his law doesn't help you one bit. A blood test that proves that you're a Jew, it does nothing for you because your fallen humanity is nothing. And so now that he's shown that they're nothing, he begins by saying, what advantage do they have? Is there any? And the answer he gives in verse 2, he says, much in every way. There absolutely is an advantage to being Jewish, but it's not the advantage that they think <laughs> that it is. And so what is the advantage that the Jew has over the Gentile or the heathen or anybody else in the world? And here's what it is. He says, much every way, chiefly or primarily, because that unto them were committed the oracles of God. Now, that's just fancy King James 
language for saying that what was given to them was the scriptures. That through Abraham, Isaac, and Jacob, and then through Moses, and then through the prophets, came the law and the scriptures. The truths of God were revealed to them first, but also through them to the rest of the world. And just kind of as an aside, for you and I, um, primarily in this room, represented Gentiles here. We're indebted to the Jews. The Jews have a bad rap. (laughs) They're hated basically throughout all of history. And they've even been stomped on by the church throughout history as being Christ killers and those that have rejected and God is through with them and the whole thing. No, 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 no. God is not through with the, the, the nation of Israel. And we are very much indebted to them because not only did they give us a savior, (laughs) But they also gave us the scripture. And without the scripture, we wouldn't have truth. So the advantage that the Jew has is that they have the truths of God. They have the law of God. And what that gives them is that it gives them first dibs on salvation. (laughs) That's why, remember in, in, in chapter 1, verse 16, when Paul says that I'm not ashamed of the gospel, for it is the power of God unto salvation, to everyone that believes, to the Jew first, and then also to the Gentile. Why is it to the Jew first? Because it was to them that the law was given. They had first view, first dibs on it, so that it could have its proper effect. Now, knowing it, having it, does nothing. But its effect upon the life, when it does what it was designed to do, ah, now the advantage begins to manifest itself. So the Jew has an advantage, just not the advantage that he, that they thought that they had. Now, as he goes into closing arguments in verses 3 through 8, he's going to ask three questions And then he's going to give the answer to those questions and draw conclusions from them so that he can boil things down now to where he wants to go. So three questions by way of closing arguments the attorney Paul brings to us. First question, verse 3. He says, For what if some did not believe? Shall their unbelief make the faith or faithfulness or truth of God without effect? In other words, God gave the scriptures, the law, the Ten Commandments, to the Jew and to the world through the Jews, and now it's out there. Now, if some of them, the Jews or the hearing Gentiles, choose not to believe it or to remain ignorant of it, well, I don't want to hear it, I don't want to believe it, that's your thing, that's not my thing, and so I just separate myself from it, Does that make the truth of God null and void in my life? Or do I become unaccountable to it because of my ignorance of it or my unbelief in it? That's going to be the first question or first argument that arises in in the defense. Well, I didn't know. Or I didn't believe. Or I was Irish and not Jewish, and so therefore it didn't apply to me. Or I was brought up Buddhist, and so I don't know the Ten Commandments. I don't believe it. So does that make it null and void in my life? Can I gain an acquittal based on the fact that I didn't believe it? And Paul gives the answer in verse 4, God forbid. Yea, rather, let God be true, but every man a liar 
as it is written, that you might be justified in your sayings and might overcome when you are judged. Now, Paul quotes, he says, as it is written, and he quotes from Psalm 51, and it's verse 4. Now, why is it significant, and how does it attach itself that he answers from Psalm 51. Anybody know what Psalm 51 is without looking it up and reading the headline? I see a few heads nodding. Anyone want to shout out? What's Psalm 51? It's David's repentance. Remember David's big blunder? Remember Bathsheba? <laughs> when David committed adultery and wasted a year and a half of his life and ruined the second half of his ministry and of his reign? Psalm 51 is the psalm that David wrote in repentance to his sin. And what David does in Psalm 51 is that he confesses his guilt. He says, God, I am guilty. I have sinned. I have violated your commands. Me, my heart is exposed. And when your commandment, your word, shines its light on my deeds and actions... I am exposed as a sinner before you. And then David says these words that Paul quotes here. He says, and I say this so that you might be justified when you judge and clear when all of this is laid out before you in court. In other words, your word, God, plus my sin laid out openly for everyone to see proves that I am guilty before you. In other words, the conclusion that Paul is making by asking and then answering this first question is that God's law, the word, manifested next to my deeds makes me guilty. I'm guilty before God. So the word of God, my actions, proves guilt, meaning the law of God exposes my sin. That's the conclusion that Paul is coming to in asking this first question. What's the second question Paul asks to bring a second conclusion? Verse 5. But if our unrighteousness, that is our sin, commend or exalt or advocate for the righteousness of God, that is his holiness then what shall we say? Is God then unrighteous who takes vengeance? Okay, next question. You say, all right, let's, let's take your answer to question number one, that the law plus my deeds makes me a sinner. Well, if God's law is magnified by the fact that my deeds are sinful and I become guilty, then doesn't that make God unrighteous? If my deeds only expose the truth of God's law, then what right does he have to judge me? Can, can I get out? Can I be acquitted in court? And you know, can I get a not guilty plea? Because well, what you're saying, Paul, is that God's law just makes me guilty. So that's not fair. Can I get an acquittal? Because things are bent in God's favor. And his answer, verse six, again, God forbid. <laughs> Another resounding no. For then how shall God judge the world? If God is going to judge the world, he's got to have a criteria by which he's judging. And the law of God becomes that criteria. 
And so you can't get off. Just because your sin makes God's holiness look brighter doesn't mean you can get off on a technicality. And then question number three in verse seven. He says, for if the truth of God, that is the law of God, the the, the standard of God, if the truth of God has more abounded, come forward, lift it up, through my lie, my sinfulness, my sins have made his law glorified unto his glory, then why am I also judged as a sinner and not rather as we be slanderously reported, and some affirm that we say, let us do evil that good may come, whose damnation is just. In other words, Paul's third rhetorical question to bring another condemnation to these people is that if my sin brings glory to God's truth, then why not just sin? Because my sin is making him appear holy, so he's being glorified in his righteousness through my iniquity. And so I might as well just keep on sinning because he's getting glory through my sinfulness and my sinful behavior. And Paul's reply to that is very simply, your damnation is just. If that's your mentality, well, I'm just going to sin because it glorifies God in some way by making his word to be true then you deserve everything that you get coming to you. You say, okay, what's the point that Paul's boiling down to as he's removing these arguments, asking these rhetorical questions? Verse 9, he says, what then? Are we better than they, speaking of Jews being better than Gentiles? And he says, no, in no way. For we have before proved both Jews and Gentiles, that they are all under sin. Now, do you see that word all at the end of verse 9? Who's a sinner? All. As it is written, and now he strings together a few different passages of Scripture, he says, there is none righteous, no, not one. Quoting there from Psalm chapter 14, verses 1 and 3. Not one. There is none that understands. There is none that seeks after God. They are all gone out of the way. They are together become unprofitable. There is none that doeth good, no, not one. Now that's an amazing assessment for God to make when he looks at humanity. He says, I look at humanity and what I see is that there is not one who is righteous. The the most righteous person before God is unrighteous because the comparison is God's law and God's holiness. He looks at them and he says that there are none that seek after God. Now that's amazing, isn't it? Because we would look at, at the sea of humanity and we think, no, 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 there are some that seek after God. But God says, no, there are none that seek after me when he looks at humanity. We seek out for ourselves right? We look out after us and God sees that in its purest form. And then he says in verse 13, watch this, their throat is an open sepulcher. That's pleasant, isn't it? That's an open grave. <laughs> you know, I mean, maybe in the morning, God, but you know, all, <laughs> no, their throat is an open sepulcher with their tongues. They have used deceit. The poison of snakes is under their lips whose mouth is full of cursing and bitterness. 
Their feet are swift to shed blood. Destruction and misery are in their ways. The way of peace they have not known. There is no fear of God before their eyes. Now notice that he, he, he covers every part of the body from the mouth to the head to the foot. God looks at the whole of the man and he sees that the whole thing is corrupted by sin. That's what God sees when he looks at humanity. I think of Isaiah chapter 1. Most people have read Isaiah 1. I think that the, the mentality of a lot of Christians is like, well, that's a big book. I'll read it. And then they read chapter 1 and they get maybe to 2 or 3 and they're like, yeah, that is a big book. I'll read New Testament. You know? <laughs> but, but everybody's read 1. And 1's a remarkable chapter because in it, God gives a very similar assessment of his people in that chapter. And he says to them there, he says that the whole head is sick. He says, from the top of the crown to the sole of the foot, the entire body is filled with disease and putrefying sores. That's the assessment of God. Thankfully, if you read, you know, you get to to verse 18, God says, hey, there's a solution to this if you'll uh, turn towards me and, and listen to things. But God looks at us and he sees what we are. Jeremiah chapter 17, verse 9. Jeremiah says these words. He says that the heart is deceitful and desperately wicked above all things. Who can know it? And we don't know the depth of our own hearts. In Daniel chapter 2, King Nebuchadnezzar has a dream. And in his dream, he sees a statue whose head is of gold, chest and arms are of silver, belly of bronze, legs are of brass, and its feet are iron mixed with clay. And the interpretation of the dream that Daniel gives to him is that those golds, that statue, represents the kingdoms that are coming in the future of world history. Babylon being the gold, the Grecian Empire being the silver, the Medo-Persian Empire, you know, and then, and then so on and so forth, all the way down through Rome and then into the last days. Well, Nebuchadnezzar sees this vision, and his vision is of a man, majestic, gold, silver, bronze, precious metals, and he sees this, and this is the kingdoms of the world. When you get to Daniel 7, Daniel has a vision, and Daniel sees wild beasts that devour and that are filled with carnage and blood and that are deformed. He sees all these different things, and he says, God, what gives? What is this vision? And God says, Daniel, these are the nations of the future history of the world. Wait, wait, wait. Didn't we do this back in chapter 2? Isn't that what Nebuchadnezzar saw? Yeah, 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 yeah. That was man's perspective. <laughs> Beautiful, gold, silver, bronze, you know, this majestic thing. Let me show you what I see, Daniel. <laughs> when I look at the nations of the world, ravaged beasts, blood, flesh being torn out, it's a bloodbath. Heaven's perspective, way different than man's perspective when looking at what we truly are. When we compare ourselves with ourselves, we can look pretty good. When we compare ourselves with the base part of humanity, we can look even better. But when we compare ourselves with the standard that God has set forward, we become extremely defiled and extremely filthy. There are two measures of comparison that God has given to us whereby it is acceptable for us to judge ourselves. Number one is the Ten Commandments. If you can hold up your behavior on a consistent basis against the Ten Commandments and find that your standards, ideals, and deeds measure up to what the Ten Commandments put forward, 
then you have right to stand before God and say, God, I'm a pretty good person. But understand that the requirement in the fine print is that they that live this way must live perfectly this way. They that do these things must live by them. Live by them means consistently, constantly. The other standard of measurement that God has put forward that is acceptable for you and I if we want to judge ourselves is the life and person of Jesus Christ. Because what Jesus Christ was, was God in the person of a man living a life according to the standards that were set forward by the Ten Commandments in the law. A perfect life. Without sin and yet facing temptation. Every day from the beginning all the way to the end. And if you and I can hold ourselves up against the law and against Christ and say, wow, you know, I don't know if I can tell the difference between the two. You could take me out and put me into either one of those things and I could be the law personified. Or, I, you know, people look at me all the time and they think I'm Jesus. I mean, I can't get into my house sometimes because of the multitude of people that are waiting there for the healing that is in my wings, you know. <laughs> it's laughable because we understand fully what we are. And what Paul is seeking to do in no uncertain terms is to lay out behind things a black velvet background. And tucked into the fabric of that black velvet background is every shred of yours and my life. We hold and possess nothing before God. We have no boast. We have no righteousness. We have no claim to be on the right side of God's justice. He is holy. We are fallen. That's the conclusion of the matter. You say, okay, then what in the world is the purpose of God giving the law to man in the first place. Because if we draw this thing out one or two steps behind, it just makes God cruel. I mean, basically, he gave us a law and a standard that it was impossible for us to keep and that does nothing but condemn us to hell forever. Thanks, God. <laughs> I mean, you could have left the law thing out of the world. You know, we would have at least been happier even if we ended up in hell in the long run. Why, God, did you give us a law that magnifies your holiness and accentuates our defilement and that condemns us to hell forever? Is that the kind of heart that you, you just want to make us feel like failures? No, 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 no. What's the conclusion? The conclusion is what's the purpose of the law? Verse 19. He says, now we know that what things soever the law saith, it saith to them who are under the law. Now, who's under the law? Everyone. We all are. The whole world is under the law of God. We're descendants of Adam. That, that's a reason word, every mouth may be stopped and all the world may become guilty before God. This was God's design, desire, motive, and intention behind giving the law to men in the first place. Therefore, verse 20, by the deeds of the law, there shall no flesh be justified in his sight. For by the law is the knowledge of sin. Did you guys hear? This is, this is the most magnificently damningly hopeful verse, probably in the entire Bible. 
circle it, put stars next to it, remember where it is. Because this is probably, this, this verse right here is the keypad on the, the little cell phone thing. This verse is the iPod that changes the world forever. Because just think about how huge this is. For thousands of years, up until the time that this was manifested and brought forward, mankind thought that his plea before God was his ability to keep the law. For thousands of years, man was measuring his value based on how well he was doing on God's scale of ten standards and ten things. Man's ambition and life goal of his ideals was to live up to this standard that in some way I might be pleasing to God based upon the things that I do and my ability to do them and how I'm improving in them. And this is my whole life. This is all my religion, all my standard of righteousness up to this point. And now the Apostle Paul takes this pin and he takes it to this balloon of my ability and ego and attempt. And he goes, and he pops it. And he says, by the deeds of the law, no flesh will be justified in his sight. Meaning that God looks at your behavior, your best behavior. God looks at your habits, your good habits, your best habits. He looks at your Bible reading. He looks at your prayer life. He looks at your alms and the money that you give. He looks at your death to self and your, your service to him. He looks at the things that you do. He looks at all of it and he says, not good enough. Now that does one of two things in my heart. It either fills me with discouragement, disdain, and death, or it makes me ask the question, might there be another way? If my deeds, if my deeds can't earn me any favor with God, and I can't find my way into heaven based upon them, then is there another way for me to please God? And another way for me to get into heaven. He says, for by the law is the knowledge of sin. Do you know what the purpose of God's law was? To show that we're sinners and that we can't keep it. He didn't give us the law so that we could try really hard just to fail in the end. He gave us the law so that we would know that we have a problem. So the question now remains, Paul has brought us to the bottom, right? Is there another way? Thank God there is. Verse 21. He says, but now. Now, we cross into a whole new section of the book of Romans now. We finally get to leave the black backdrop behind. And we see the glorious light that that black backdrop is seeking to accentuate and highlight. He says, but now. Now, follow this. Are you ready? The righteousness of God... Now, what is the righteousness of God? It's his holiness. It's his perfection. It's the standard that allows a person to get into heaven. The righteousness of God, to be declared righteous. Watch this. Apart from the law is manifested. Oh, hope. There's hope. You mean I, there is somewhere out there 
There is a pass to get into heaven that is not at all dependent or linked to my performance, my goodness, my morality, my ability to keep his law. (laughs) Tell me more. Tell me more. The righteousness of God apart from the law is manifested being witnessed by the law and the prophets. Now that's an important part of, of the passage because what he's saying is that this isn't just something new, an afterthought that God came up with like oh, 4,000 years into trying this whole law thing is not working out. So we got to do this Jesus thing because the law thing failed. No, 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 no. This way was spoken of in the Old Testament. The law and the prophets spoke of this way that is to come. What are you talking about, Paul? Verse 22. He says, even the righteousness of God, the holiness of God, the free pass into heaven, which is by faith in Jesus Christ unto all and upon all that believe, for there is no difference at all. The righteousness of God. So what is this way into heaven? It is a righteousness that is a declaration of innocence, a justification for your sins that is given to you and that comes by faith in Jesus Christ. In other words, I'm believing in what God provided through Christ on the cross And that is a righteousness that now becomes available to me. You say, how does that work? Well, watch this for a minute. Romans 6.23, and you don't have to turn there, but it says this. It says that the wages of sin is death, right? So just think about that in a mathematical equation for a minute. You could just write sin on one side. I'm doing this backwards for you. Sin, okay, and then equals death, Meaning, if I sin, what results? Death. And death is separation from God, eternal hell. And you could just write that on every one of your papers. That's it. Just on the top. Sin equals death. We're all dead. Okay? Now, life, or I'm sorry, no sin equals life. Right? So you got two statements. Sin equals death. No sin equals life. Now, we have all sinned. So therefore, we all deserve death, right? Now, Jesus, watch this, because we're going to take Jesus and put his name underneath here where we would have no sin, because Jesus had no sin. No sin equals life, right? We all get that? But what Jesus did is that Jesus, who had no sin, he became sin. He moved his name into the sin column Right? And he absorbed death. So the cross was Jesus absorbing the punishment for all sin. So Jesus died, and in the process, something happened. Because Jesus had no sin, yet he suffered the consequences of sin. Listen, the righteousness that was in Jesus because of what he did popped up into the air and it became available for someone else because he effectively traded places with the sinner. 
And so he said, okay, I'll go to death and I'll release my righteousness. And now what God has declared is that any man who will confess his guilt of sin can come to God by faith in what Jesus did and that righteousness that was provided by Christ will be laid then to their account. The law of God demands that sin be punished with death. If there is no Jesus, then that means that you have a piece of paper that has all of your sins listed on it, every one that you've ever committed. And you have to answer and pay for every one of those sins. And you have two choices, because someone's going to pay for that sin. You're either going to pay for it yourself, which is going to mean hell, forever, eternal separation from God, or you have to find someone who has never sinned, someone on the planet somewhere, that is willing to trade places with you and die for you so that you can have what they've earned rightfully, a place in heaven. And so you search, you can go to every continent and search high and low, you can search every, everywhere you, you can. And let's say you find someone somewhere in some remote part of Antarctica, you know, you find someone that just has never sinned a day in their life, they're just special, you know. Now you've got to convince that person to trade places with you. Say, hey, I've got a business proposition for you. <laughs> I mean, you, try to, you can try to spin that thing any way you want to, you know. There's not a person in the world that would make that deal with you. So what you're telling me <laughs> is that I can give you my place in heaven, eternal life, in paradise, and you're going to give me all your sins and I get to go to hell forever? Where do I sign up? You know, nobody's ever going to do that. That's what the cross was. The cross was God becoming a man. Suffering through a life in a fallen world of perfect righteousness, never sinning, never falling short in one thing. And then coming, not waiting for us to come to him, but coming to us and saying, I've got a business proposition for you. Look inside your heart. Yeah, what's in there? It's all good. I mean, look, I'm not as bad as that guy. Okay, okay let me show you Exodus 20. Look, look through this lens. Now look at your heart. What do you see there? I, 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 I can't see. <laughs> I don't want to. Let me show you your thoughts. Have you ever lusted after a woman in your heart? You've already committed adultery with her. Have you ever been angry with a person? Not dealt with that anger in the proper way or brought it to its proper resolution. It's murder. You've murdered someone in your heart. You're guilty of murder. You've broken. You've violated this law. And what that means, let me show you what that means. Eternal separation from God. You've tasted in this world in the emptiness of what it is to live in this world. But let me show you what this means for eternity to be separated from God. Do you see it? Now look what I've accomplished. Look what I've done. And because I love you, I'm willing to take what I've rightfully earned and gift it to you and in exchange take what you have rightfully earned and suffer the consequences and the tragedy of being separated from God and having every one of those sins punished and dealt with. And I'll do it for free. It costs you nothing but faith in me to trust in me, 
that what I've done, the life I've lived, is enough to effectively cover the sins that you have committed. A righteousness of God, which is by faith in Jesus Christ, unto all and upon all them that believe, for there is no difference. It's unto all, Jew or Gentile. For all have sinned and come short of the glory of God. Watch this, verse 24. Being justified. Justified justified means acquitted. It means pronounced innocent. If you want a, a quick definition, just break up the word. It's justified, never sinned. It's just as if I'd never sinned. Justified. That's what it means. They are justified how? Freely. Circle that word. Freely. It costs you and I nothing. It wasn't free. It costs God, his son. It cost Christ the cross. But to you and I, it costs nothing. Justified freely. How? What motivated it? By his grace. It was motivated by the grace of God. And how was it paid for? Through the redemption that is in Christ Jesus. Now, redemption is an economical, accounting, monetary term. In the Old Testament, you could mortgage your land if you fell on hard times, and then you could redeem it by paying back the price. And so redemption is, is an article of, of expenditure. To redeem something means I'm buying something back. And so your life, your eternity, was paid for, redeemed by Christ. That's what he was doing when he went to the cross. Whom, speaking of Jesus, verse 25, God has set forth to be a propitiation. It's a big word. It means substitution. Remember the equation? We substituted everything around. To be a substitution through faith in his blood. How does the substitution happen? When I believe. It's not when I do. It's what I believe. To declare... So the declaration now that's being made through all of this, his righteousness, that is a salvation, a gift, for the remission of sins, that's the forgiveness of sins that are past, through the forbearance of God, the patience of God, the goodness of God, to declare, second declaration, verse 26, I say, at this time, his righteousness so that he might be just and the justifier of him that believes in Jesus. What does that mean? It means that God could not be just, meaning fair, good, righteous, and just wipe out our sins, doing nothing with them. He wouldn't be just. In other words, we stand before him in court, and we say, yeah, God, I'm guilty, I'm a sinner, but I don't want to go to hell. Can you just forgive all these and God would be like, yeah, I'm not supposed to, but I am God. Okay, you're in. No, no, it doesn't work like that. Because if God did that, then God wouldn't be just. He wouldn't be perfect. He would be less than God. What else is he going to pull the rug out from under? Is eternal life really eternal life then? What if after like 4,000 years I tick God off and he goes, well, I'm not supposed to do this, but I'm God. You know, and he kind of, <laughs> you know, flicks us off into, you know, and I'm speaking foolishly. Obviously, none of these things are true. God is God. And for God to be God, God must be just, meaning that if God is going to forgive sin, then there must be the penalty for sin paid for in the proper way. 
And since sin was committed in the flesh of fallen man, sin must be paid for by the flesh of man. And thus God sent his son so that he could be just, fair, and yet still justify. Psalm 2 says that righteousness and peace have kissed each other. It's done in the person of Christ. He's just and he's the justifier of who? Him which believes in Jesus. What does it mean to believe in Jesus? Does it simply mean that I have an intellectual acknowledgement of his existence and of the facts concerning him that are stated forth in Scripture? No, it's not what it means. Because James tells us that even the devils believe in Jesus. And they're certainly not saved or redeemed because of their faith. They believe. To believe means, in the, the New Testament biblical sense, it means that I am trusting in him. That I'm trusting in Christ to be the fullness of my forgiveness. Meaning, I am no longer trusting in myself. My good deeds, my ideals, my standards, my performance. I have removed my confidence in all of that. And I have placed my confidence completely in what Jesus did for me. I'm clinging to that. So that when I stand before God, and God, if he does it this way, says to me, hey, your marriage. You're a decent father, but your marriage. Let's talk about that. No, no, Jesus. Jesus. I'm not going to say before God, I'm not going to say, well, God, um, you know, I did this and she did that. And if she had done this, then I probably would have done this. And if she hadn't done that, then I, I'm not going to do that. I'm going to say, Lord, you're right. Guilty, guilty, condemned before you. I was a horrible husband and a horrible father at that. I screwed everything up, but I'm trusting in Jesus. My faith is there. I'm a fallen, wretched sinner. And before you, I deserve nothing but hell. But I trust in Jesus and I receive what he did for me. God says, okay, good. Let's, mo let's move on. Let's move on. Let's talk about your work ethic, Nick. <laughs> well, Lord, it's my upbringing. You should have seen my father, you, the way that he was. I, I mean, I, I had no chance. You, you, just, you understand? I had to be a hustler. I couldn't. You, no, 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 no. Lord Jesus, it's Jesus. I know. Condemned, guilty, fallen. Let's talk about these hypocritical things in your life. You sat on a stool. Taught with authority. How did you do? Oh, Jesus. <laughs> Lord, I'm guilty. I'm guilty. Every day of my life, I'm guilty, but I'm trusting in Jesus. My confidence is in Christ for the forgiveness of my sins. He died on the cross because I couldn't do it myself. Galatians 3.21 says that if righteousness comes by the law, then Christ is dead in vain. That's my plea. It's my only plea. It's Christ. So what's the result? Verse 27. I love it. I love it. Be set free, men. Where is boasting then? It is what? It is excluded. See, I can't compare myself with you anymore. Because it means nothing. I can't compare myself with someone else and say, well, I'm doing pretty good if you consider that guy. It doesn't matter. No, no, no. I can't boast because 
Perfection is the standard and Christ is my plea. By what law? Of works? No, but by the law of faith. And so here's the conclusion of the matter, verse 28. Therefore, we conclude that a man is justified or declared clean, righteous, and holy by faith without the deeds of the law. That should be the most liberating verse any of us have ever read or come across in our lives. That I'm justified before God because of my faith in Christ and not at all based on my performance. Is he the God of the Jews only? Is he not also the God of the Gentiles? Yes, of the Gentiles also. Seeing it is one God which shall justify the circumcision by faith and the uncircumcision through faith. Do we then make void the law through faith? God forbid. No, we establish the law. Do we just get rid of the law now? No, no, no. We're going to talk about why the law is good and why it's to be established in the studies in the chapter uh, to come. But his righteousness has been declared in the person of Christ. So what's the conclusion as we uh, wrap up our study this morning, the conclusion that we come to in all this? Number one is that there's absolutely no place for boasting. We cannot boast about what we did not build and what we did not pay for. You know, um, funny thing, you know, sometimes someone will buy a brand new house and someone comes into that house and, and they're like, this house is beautiful. It's amazing. And the person stands there like, yeah, thank you. you know, they didn't build it. You know, they're standing there. Well, you have good taste, you know, and you, good luck or something. But what are we boasting about? Even more so, you, find, you come to find out that they inherited all the money to buy it from their parents. And yet they're standing in there going, oh. Listen, when we all stand in heaven and we look at each other and we say, man, you made it. And we're like, yeah, I know. I know you thought I was something. You thought I was crooked, but I'm here. No, 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 there's not going to be any of that. Every single one of us, we're going to look at each other, and there's not going to be a single word exchanged. There's going to be the half smile of the rest that we're enjoying, and then we'll both turn our eyes and we'll look upon him whose wounds are there manifested, the lamb having been slain from the foundation of the world, and we will recognize and realize fully that the reason that we are standing in glory is because of what he accomplished on our behalf. And nothing at all about what we did at all. There is no boasting. And if we can get that now, then happy are we. It's the key to our fellowship with one another. Because we're not like, eh. we're wretched sinners, it's what we are. We also conclude that Jesus Christ is the universal remedy for sin. Universal. He is the answer and way that God has provided for a man to be declared righteous and to get into heaven. And now the law is not uh, obviously obsolete, but God is going to use it. 